Um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. And while you're doing that, uh, if, you're, if you're just joining us, we've been studying through the book of Daniel in a series called Changing Kingdoms, Unchanging King. Each chapter in this book has given us insight into some facet of God's ability to rule over his kingdom. In Daniel 1, you'll remember we learned that those who walk with integrity, he's able to exalt. In Daniel 2, we learned that those who walk in faithfulness, he is able to empower. In Daniel 3, last week, we learned that even those who literally walk through fire, he is able to deliver. But in Daniel 4, God wants us to see that those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So let me read Daniel chapter 4 to us, starting in verse 1. And I'm going to actually read from my little Daniel study guide, because that's what I've been studying with this week. Uh, So it's got all my writing and stuff in here. (laughs) Uh, So let's read Daniel chapter 4. This is God's holy word. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I laid in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know 
that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, in which, for, in which food, in which, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon the Lord, my King, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, 
lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Let's pray. Father, we we come to you as best we can, Lord, humbly. In the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, Lord, we ask you to be merciful to us as we encounter and consider your word this morning. Spirit of God, would you come and and illuminate to us the truth found in these scriptures. Cause our ears to hear and understand this truth. Help our eyes to see and our hearts to believe this truth. Lord, would would you wash us with the water of your word? Renew our minds, deepen our affections for you. Help us to see your glory, Lord. Most of all, God, would you would you grant us faith to respond to your word? in humble obedience and trust. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, my wife has this thing that she does every time she picks up a new book to read, especially when she reads fiction novels. Before she starts reading the first page, she loves to turn to the very last page of the book and read the last sentence, or maybe sometimes the last paragraph, That would just drive me nuts to do that, but but she loves to do that. She finds it intriguing to read how the story ends, even though she has no idea who any of the characters are or what the plot line will be. I think she feels like it adds a layer of mystery and curiosity as she tries to figure out how the author will get to the conclusion over the course of the book. I know we've already read Daniel 4 uh, in its entirety, so we can't necessarily do that this morning, but suppose we had tested out Aaron's little tactic on our text If we had begun by reading the concluding verse of the letter before we read the opening ones, I think we would have been shocked by what we read. Look at verse 37. It says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. I mean, from what we've already learned about King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 1 through 3, Uh, This is not the kind of thing you'd expect to be coming out of this man's mouth. But we did skip uh, to the end of the story, so we need to go back to the beginning to see what's going on here. So if you look back at verse 1, as we turn to the opening of the chapter, we get a few more clues. We find out we're reading a letter, uh, a letter that was written by none other than King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And this letter is addressed, as it says in verse 1, to all peoples and nations and languages that dwell in all the earth which is a bit ambitious if you ask me, but hey, I mean, this is King Nebuchadnezzar we're talking about. So ironically, 
and ironically, that's actually the same guest list uh, that he invited to the golden statue shindig that he did uh, back in chapter 3. So that's just kind of interesting to see that he's writing another letter to everyone uh, that he thinks is under his rule. <laughs> uh, then as we keep reading in verse 2, we seem to stumble upon his at- intention for the writing of this letter. Look in verse 2. It says, It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. One might wonder if the signs and wonders he's talking about might be the interpretation of his dream in Daniel 2. Or maybe the miraculous deliverance of Daniel's friends out of the fiery furnace in Daniel 3. Those were definitely signs and wonders that Nebuchadnezzar saw. But notice the personal emphasis right there at the end of verse 2. It seems that the signs and wonders he wants to put on display for his readers are not just miraculous things he's witnessed in others. He says that these signs and wonders that he wants, that he thinks is going to be good to show us, are the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me, he says. That sounds like a different Nebuchadnezzar. We might be getting ahead of ourselves, but it sounds like some sort of profound spiritual change has taken place in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And then the next thing we know, the pagan king of Babylon is bursting into song. How how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, his dominion endures from generation to generation. What is going on here? Nebuchadnezzar has only ever seemed to care about his own dominion and his own kingdom, but here we find him singing the greatness of Israel's God. And I think that should make us wonder, like, have we missed something? (laughs) And I think that's good storytelling. Uh, So... You know, he's hooked us. He wants us to walk away from this letter as we finish reading it, knowing that there was a main point that he was trying to make. And that main point, I've got it there in your notes, is that a day is coming when all who walk in pride will be humbled by the king of kings. So if there's anything we've learned from King Nebuchadnezzar from the previous three chapters of the book, it's that he's got a bit of a pride problem. In chapter 1, we're told he steals some of the vessels of the house of Israel and mockingly places them in the treasury of his own God, proudly proclaiming his God to be superior over the God of Israel. In chapter 2, we can almost hear a sort of maniacal pleasure that Nebuchadnezzar gets from striking fear into the hearts of his own wise men, threatening to rip their limbs off of them if they aren't able to successfully reveal and interpret his dream. And they, of course, fail, but God enables Daniel to fulfill the king's insane request. And surprisingly, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, I, I might say Neb as we're doing this this morning because I abbreviated that in my notes all, all throughout. Uh, so if I say Neb, I'm talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Um, surprisingly, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges Daniel's God as God of gods and Lord of kings. He does that at the end of chapter 2. But then we get to chapter 3 and we find that even though Neb's lips, Neb's, even though Nebuchadnezzar's lips had honored the Lord, apparently his heart was still far from him. Nebuchadnezzar has also apparently decided to disprove the dream in chapter 2 by defiantly constructing an entirely golden statue of himself, not just the head, as he had seen in the dream. And then he summons, summons everyone to the palace for his big reveal party and demands that they bow down and worship his statue or be thrown into a blazing furnace. I mean, the guy is definitely full of himself and a little on the crazy side. And all that happens before we even get to chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar makes his probably his most blatantly prideful statement in the whole book. If you look at verse 30, it's where he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I mean, this is clinical arrogance. <laughs> His rhetorical question is basically asking, aren't I the most powerful being in the world? 
Could there possibly be anyone out there who would want to challenge my might? Look at what my hands have built. Look at how my kingdom exalts my majesty. Look at my glory. I mean, that's just not the sort of thing you want to be casually throwing out to the cosmos when there's an actual, like, omnipresent, omniscient God running the universe. It kind of reminds me of the scene in the first Avengers movie. Uh, Have anybody seen that? I just don't want to tell an analogy that most people didn't see. So there's a scene where Hulk comes smashing through the top of Stark Tower and he hits Loki. uh, And, you know, Loki jumps up and he yells at Hulk. He says, enough! You are all of you beneath me. I am a god, you dull creature, and I will not be bullied by it. And then Hulk picks him up by the ankles and he repeatedly slams him back and forth into the ground. It's a great scene. But Hulk, Hulk actually has the best line as he's walking away, he mutters under his breath, puny God. <laughs> it's so good. If I were God, I think that's the way I would respond to some puny man I created running around on earth calling himself great, trying to steal credit for the power I permitted him to have and saying it all exists for his glory. But this isn't just Neb's problem. It's my problem. It's your problem. Every one of us. It's the problem of the entire human race. Ever since the garden, pride has been the true nature of our fallen humanity. We're sinfully proud. In our pride, we are discontent because we think we deserve more than we've been given. In our pride, we crave knowledge and power. We want to have no limits, to be our own self-sufficient creatures. And in our pride, we crave this power and knowledge because we think we could run the universe better than God does. Because of pride, every one of us are just like Nebuchadnezzar, busy building our private little kingdoms, trying to promote ourselves to puny God status, standing on the rooftops of our self-made palaces and proclaiming, is this not my great kingdom which I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And it's a stench in the nostrils of the king of kings. God warned the Israelites about this way back in Deuteronomy chapter 8. In verse 17, he says this, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods, And serve them and worship them. I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Man is sinfully proud. Left to ourselves, our pride and self-sufficiency will only worsen. Our pride is infinitely detestable to a holy and righteous God. It must and will be punished. So Nebuchadnezzar warns us with this letter. A, A day is coming when all who walk in pride will be humbled by the king of kings. But thankfully, God doesn't immediately Hulk smash us into bits the first moment we entertain a prideful thought. Instead, and this is our second point, God is mercifully patient. And we see this in Nebuchadnezzar's life. God gave Nebuchadnezzar several merciful opportunities to turn from his sinful pride. Even before we get to chapter 4, God has been working on Nebuchadnezzar. He's been patiently introducing him to the power and might of the Most High God. And showing that he has the power to interpret dreams. That he has the power to interpret dreams. And in displaying his power by delivering the Israelite teenagers out of the fiery furnace. By the end of Daniel 3, it seems, at least momentarily, that Nebuchadnezzar is convinced that Yahweh really is the Most High God. 
He blesses his name there. But as we've already seen by Daniel 4, Neb's back lounging on his palace rooftop in ease and prosperity, proudly praising himself for the kingdom he's built. And don't we do that same thing? We get glimpses of God, we're humbled by him, and then we just get back up on our rooftop and keep slaving away at building our kingdom. But what God does next is he he mercifully gives Nebuchadnezzar another dream. God doesn't come to him in a fit of reckless rage. Three times the text highlights for us that the dream comes to him as Nebuchadnezzar lays in bed. God doesn't come as a mighty warrior in the midst of battle. He comes to him in the calm and quiet of his sleep. And even the dream begins in a mercifully pleasant way, doesn't it? It's filled with images of a great and beautiful tree seen by all and giving sustenance to every living creature. But then the dream takes a sharp turn as the Holy One descends from heaven to chop down the tree. Look at verse 14. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Skip to verse 16. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This second half of the dream, it alarms Nebuchadnezzar. It makes him afraid. But even even this alarm and, and, and fear, it's a mercy from the patient hand of God. Nebuchadnezzar had placed himself in the center of the universe, thinking of himself as a God, all-powerful and glorious. How merciful of God to not allow Nebuchadnezzar to continue with that delusion. Sometimes we can feel as though God is being harsh with us when he seems to deny us some pleasure or possession or seems to discipline us. But we got to remember Hebrews 12, verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. This is the lesson God is teaching Nebuchadnezzar, that he may know that the Most High, not Nebuchadnezzar, but the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. That's one mercy. Another mercy God shows Nebuchadnezzar is in the loving and patient way Daniel interacts with the king as he interprets his dream. Even before the dream's interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar seems to have some sense that this was not going to be good news for him. I mean, why else would a tree getting chopped down terrify somebody? I think he, he kind of had to know, like, I think I might be the tree. But God lovingly allows the king's devoted servant, Daniel, to interpret this troubling dream for the king. And, and look, Daniel could have been a jerk in this moment. <laughs> this would have been the perfect opportunity, actually, to finally repay Nebuchadnezzar for all the unkind things he had done to him and his family and his friends. But Daniel, like Jesus, not like us, but like Jesus, turns the other cheek. And instead of relishing in Nebuchadnezzar's coming judgment, he shows pity for him. Look in verse 19. It says, My Lord, let the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. This dream, it's bad news for Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel genuinely doesn't want to see destruction come upon his king. You can hear the pleading in Daniel's voice. In verse 22 and 24, he begins each sentence with, O king. 
And then Daniel begs for Nebuchadnezzar to turn from his ways before it's too late. Look at verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. He's pleading with him. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel is kind and sweet and undeserved. And is showing undeserved mercy to King Nebuchadnezzar. And and this undeserved mercy, it's patiently pointing the king away from his sinful pride and toward the mercy and forgiveness of God. May we be this kind of help to one another. There's yet another mercy we see in this chapter. Look with me at uh, verse 28. Verse 28 says this, all this came, this is after the interpretation's been given. It says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, period. Then verse 29 says, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace. 12 months lapse. We aren't given any details. We aren't told if Nebuchadnezzar takes the dream to heart or if he ever gives it even a second thought. We don't know if he makes any effort to break off his sins and iniquities, if he experiences any victories or failures. We don't know if God continues to warn him or maybe that God doesn't say another word to him. All we know is that 12 months go by and it seems like nothing has changed. And you know, a few, a few months ago, a little orange exclamation point popped up on the dashboard of our van when I started the ignition. And the first day it came on, I remember feeling this sense of fear and and worry about what I thought must be an indication we had some big expensive like problem coming uh, about to go down. So all these questions flooded my mind. You know, are are my brakes going to stop working? Is my transmission shot? Was my entire car going to explode the next time I started it up? I admittedly don't know much about cars. And this will probably drive some of you in here crazy, but I honestly, I can't even remember what the problem the warning light was indicating it like I don't even remember what that problem is right now <laughs> I do remember it being somewhere between you you must get this looked at and you're an absolute moron if you choose to ignore this <laughs> uh, but after a few weeks with no apparent signs of danger I started to foolishly think maybe I had been overreacting to the little orange light bulb I began thinking thoughts like the car's been starting fine for weeks so it can't be that urgent it's probably just the warning light that's broken if the problem were really ser- as serious as the manual says, the van would have died already. So I went with the absolute moron option and ignored it. And the warning light hasn't gone away. It's still there, flashing at us every time we start up the van. But the sobering part is, it no longer alarms me. The warning has lost its weight. I've grown desensitized to its urgency. Over time, I've adopted the notion that if I'm not able to detect a problem myself, then there must not really be a problem present. And that's such an arrogant and insane posture for someone who knows nothing about cars. We don't know all the reasons why, after 12 whole months, Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't seem to heed the warning of God. Maybe he would have acted differently if he knew the day that all this, like his whole world was going to fall apart. Maybe he would have responded. But... I think this story is here in the Bible as a warning for us. May we let Nebuchadnezzar's life be a warning light to us this morning. We must not presume upon the patience and mercy of God. Have you allowed yourself, think think about your life, have you allowed yourself to become desensitized to the weight and urgency of the Lord's warnings? Where have you chosen to delay instead of addressing the warnings that 
he's given you. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 95. It says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Turn now to him. Be encouraged, church. Like think, Maybe we can spend some time this week just thinking and prayerfully considering about our lives. Like Where, where Lord, are you warning me? What are you wanting me to, to know? What, what indication is popping up in my life that I've chosen to ignore? And turn to him. Ask him for forgiveness and trust in him for that. There's one final mercy we see in our text, and it's perhaps the most surprising mercy of all. After the Holy One declares his intent to chop down the tree, he adds this merciful provision. I didn't write down the verse. Sorry. I've got, I'll just read it. I don't remember which verse it is. I'm sorry. Oh, verse 15. Sorry. Here it is. Verse 15. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Later on, as Daniel interprets the dream, he explains this more fully. He explains God's patient and merciful intention. Look in verse 26. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So basically what he's saying is like, Nebuchadnezzar, if you choose to humble yourself and turn, what's going to happen is God's going to give you your kingdom back. I mean, can you believe that? That that's part of the punishment, part of the promise? King Nebuchadnezzar has uttered one of the most blasphemous statements we find in the Bible, and yet Yahweh is promising to restore the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar back to him. Are you beginning to smell the aroma of the gospel of grace? Along with a terrible sentence, God promises salvation. There is provision in the punishment, sympathy in the slaying, tenderness in the tearing down. This, this is the hope we have in Christ fellow Christians. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, pridefully rebelling against the rule and reign of our creator, deserved a much greater sentence than Nebuchadnezzar received. He was stripped of his earthly kingdom and struck with insanity. We deserve to be separated from the good and gracious kingdom of God, to be tormented in hell for all eternity. But praise be to God for his patient mercy toward us. He rescues us out of our sanity insanity. He restores us back into his kingdom. What, what an amazing mystery that his grace has come to me. He promises this grace to all who humble themselves and pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. But for those who do not, a day is coming when all who walk in pride will be humbled by the King of Kings. And that's our final point. Everyone will bow to the King of Kings. You may have heard the old adage, God helps those who help themselves. Well, that's not in the Bible. But what is in the Bible is God humbles those who don't humble themselves. Kinda. Matthew 23 says it this way, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Either you will bow your own knee, or the Lord will bow it for you. Not a single person is exempt. Either way, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess him as Lord. Because a day is coming when all who walk in pride will be humbled by the King of Kings. 
Nebuchadnezzar was patiently given many chances to humble himself, but when he refused, God mercifully, mercifully forced him to bow, made him go insane, sent him away from his kingdom, stripped him of all that. And Nebuchadnezzar, we see, he came out on the other side of that experience, a changed man. We don't know what happened to him beyond the end of chapter 4. But if the last words he spoke in this chapter define the remainder of his life on earth, it seems like he finally and truly learned what it meant to be a humble man before the king of kings. And that's a good promise that we get. That's a good lesson that we learn from this chapter. Maybe you're here this morning and God has taken you through a season of humbling. Maybe, like Nebuchadnezzar, God has warned you to break off your sins and iniquities. Daniel had encouraged Nebuchadnezzar with two specific ways to humble himself. And he said, break off your sins and practice righteousness. This is in verse 27. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. What does that mean? That means don't, don't knowingly do wrong things, but knowingly do right things. So if you're here this morning, you're hearing the Lord addressing you and saying, prideful daughter, prideful son, break off your sins. This is what he's telling you. Start practicing righteousness. Do the right things. Don't do the wrong things. And the other thing that Daniel tells him is to, to show mercy so, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. What does that mean? Well, the, the, the reason that we get prideful is because we look at ourselves and we serve ourselves. So he's saying the way that you fight against those iniquities, serve other people. Go out, find somebody else to, to pay attention to. Ask them what they need. Serve them. Stop looking at yourself. In any case, he says, resist sinful pride and accept the merciful patience of God at work in your life. Don't ignore his warnings. Let's not be a church filled with Christians who look like we're all singing in Christ alone or my God is the ancient of days, but really we've got our own little kingdom and throne sitting, that we're sitting on inside of our hearts. Don't ignore his warning, church. Trust in him. Remain humbled beneath his sovereign, loving hand because the day is coming when all who walk in pride will be humbled by the king of kings. Let's pray. Lord, as I... You know, as I studied this passage this week, Lord, I, was just, I, I myself was humbled, Lord. This was a heavy passage. But I thought of categories of my life where pride, sometimes unknowingly, sometimes knowingly, pride is allowed to remain and to function and, and to have rule, Lord. And I just, I just want to pray for us right now as we, as we walk away from this morning with a heavy word, with a word that is a warning word. God, that we'd walk away, not with our tails tucked behind, like in, inside our legs, not with our heads drooping down, Lord, but would we walk away with hope? And not because I'm just saying it, Lord, but because of that last point, that, or the second point, Lord, that you are a mercifully patient God to us. So if any of us are here this morning and pride is kicking our butts and, and we, we are seeing categories where, where our hands are raised to the Lord and we're challenging you, God, would, would you remind us, Lord, you are mercifully patient to us this morning. It is in your best interest that we humble ourselves. 
Lord, so you, you want to help us do that this morning. So Lord, I, I pray for your Spirit's help, Lord. If, if, there are, if there are places that you've identified in our lives that need confession, that need repentance, Lord, would you, would you work in us? Lord, would you draw us to yourself? Lord, would you convince us of your love for us? Would we not walk away from the service this morning and go run back straight to the, the pride um, program that we've been engaged in all week? Lord, we, we want to be people who are humble, people who see you as our king, people who are obeying you, people who are serving you and your people. Lord, so where pride exists, Lord, would you, would you kill it in us? Lord, and the way you do that is not by, just by us praying a prayer. Lord, the way you do that is by working through us. Lord, so, so work through us, Lord, we pray. Now, thank you for this word. Um, we're grateful for your mercy, Lord. We're humbled by it. So now, Lord, as we sing, as we join our voices together, would you, would you allow us... In this, this moment as we're collectively together as a church, help us to say something that's true about you. Uh, Lord, would you use this song that we're about to sing together uh, to stir faith in our souls, uh, to, to solidify the truth that we've been hearing from your word, Lord, and, and to sing it into each other's souls. Lord, help us to do that. Use the song in that way. We pray for your glory. Amen.